You are listening to the Testudo Times Podcast Network. Hey guys, and welcome to the latest Testudo Times Outtakes Podcast. I'm your host, Lila Bromberg, here with Matt Levine. And today we're joined by Hall of Famer David Aldridge, who has covered the NBA for ESPN and Turner Sports, and now is Editor-in-Chief of The Athletic in D.C. Thank you so much for joining us to talk about the NBA draft and give us some insight on your career. We really appreciate it. Well, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. And I think before we get into the NBA draft, I think a lot of big things on people's mind. We were watching The Last Dance the other night. You were on those mm-hmm. first two episodes. Um how did you get asked about doing that? And, you know, what was your action to uh, get to be a part of that? Uh, I'm trying to remember <clears throat> exactly which one of the producers got in touch with me. One of them did many, many months before I actually sat down and said that they wanted to make sure that they talked to me. Uh, you know, I was covering I was covering the league initially for the Washington Post because they covered the they were the bullets then. Right. Um, that's how long ago it was. Um, covered the bullets in the late eighties and early nineties. And obviously as part of covering that, covering the bullets, you covered the rest of the league and was around the bulls a lot. Cause we, in those days, newspapers had money and we could travel everywhere. And so I was always with the bulls or the pistons during the playoffs. Um, and then when I went to ESPN, you know, as a national guy, I was continuing to cover them. So I guess they, they must've read, the clips or seen <clears throat> seen some of the old tapes of me on TV and knew that I had been around the team a bit, quite a bit in those years. So he asked, and I obviously wanted to take part in it because, you know, Michael has been very quiet since he retired as a player. He does not do many interviews at all. Um, rarely does interviews on the record. <clears throat> um, and so, and, and I had known, for years, it was kind of like a, a legendary tale about the million feet of film that NBA Entertainment had shot that last year, uh, where the Bulls were in '98. And I knew guys who worked at NBA Entertainment, and it was something they talked about a lot. Was that they they wanted to do something with that film? They had it, they wanted to do something with it, but Michael would never cooperate. So there was no point in doing anything with it if Michael wasn't going to cooperate. So once, once it became clear that Michael had given the green light to, to sit down and talk and was going to be on the record, um, you wanted to be a part of it because you knew that this was going to kind of be the ultimate record of, of that year and that era of NBA basketball as seen through the eyes of, of the Chicago Bulls. So um, it was it was just a matter of finding a time where we could sit down for a couple of hours and talk. And they came through D.C. I want to say it was I want to say it was March or April of last year. I can't remember exactly when. And we sat down and, and did. I thought it was going to be like half an hour. We wound up talking for two and a half hours. And what has your reaction been to seeing? you know, seeing people watch it back now. And it seems like, especially people of our generation are getting to see more, you know, we obviously didn't get to watch games lives and things like that. And I know for me personally, it's been really cool to just be able to watch it back more in depth. What's been your reaction to just see, you know, blowing up on Twitter and um, just everyone talking about this team again? 
Well, I'm just happy that people are talking about that era again. Um, I think, you know, out of sight, out of mind is something that you don't really understand until it happens to you, <laughs> you know? And so um, the, the notion that a lot of people who are maybe under 30 have of that era of NBA basketball was that it was terrible and that there was, you know, nobody scored and it was always 78, 75 and nobody shot any threes and how much fun could it have been? And so I, I'm glad that people who are younger are getting to see exactly how dynamic that era of NBA basketball was and how much fun it was and how great the players were back then. Um, it was just a different game, as I try to explain to people. Because of the rules back then, you could do a lot more physically than you can do now. And so the game became... There is certainly a lot more holding and grabbing and hitting and punching and all of those things back then. Um, but there was also, I think, a greater strain of competitiveness um, led by Jordan, who was the most hyper-competitive person I've ever known. Um, he was just insanely competitive. and But he wasn't the only one. I mean, Magic Johnson was the same way. Larry Bird was the same way. Isaiah Thomas was the same way. And, and, and there were so many people like that back then who would do anything to win. And there was genuine rivalries back then. There were teams that really did not like each other uh, because you didn't have free agency. Uh, players tended to stay with the same team for, for years, for decade, you know, for a decade or more. And so they really came to, <clears throat> own the teams that they were on and really wanted to beat those other teams, you know, especially in the East, the Pistons and the Celtics and, and the Bulls and the Knicks also really had these heated rivalries with one another and the heat as well, um, where they really did not like each other. And I'm glad that people are getting to see how competitive and how physical the game was back then, uh, because it really did speak to how, how good the competition was back then. And transitioning into today's NBA and kind of what the world is, is facing right now, in your mind, do you see an NBA season realistically being finished? And if you if you do, like what capacity do you see it being finished in? Well, I know they want to do it. The number and that's the most important thing is that both the league and the players want to finish this season in some form, right? So if if both sides are in agreement on that kind of overarching principle then I tend to believe that at some point they're going to figure out some sort of playoff that can be meaningful to everyone. I have no idea what that's going to look like. I'm guessing it's going to be a shorter kind of truncated playoff structure. You may have a first round that's three game, best of three or best of five, for example, maybe the first round or two um, before you go back to seven game series just because you run out of days at a certain point in the calendar. I mean, just, you know, I, I don't see any scenario under which they could possibly begin, begin before mid-June. And most playoff, you know, regular playoffs takes two months, essentially. You know, it takes seven to eight weeks. So even if you cut it down to five or six weeks, you're still talking about ending in August, right? Or early August, mid-August even if you do that and that's if you start in mid-june and i'm not sure you're going to be able to start in mid-june so 
you know, they do not, what they do not want to do is bump into next season. I can, I know that that's something they do not want. They don't want next season to start in December. You know what I mean? So they, there's just been so much economic upheaval with this year, losing games this year, that the last thing they want to do is start pushing the calendar back and trying to redo next year. So if you're going to start next season relatively on time, let's, you know, it starts now in mid-October. Let's say for the sake of argument, they push that back to November, which is when it used to start, you know, until a few years ago. Even if you do that, the players have to have some time off, right? You can't end the season this season in August and then start next season in October. You know, you have to give them a couple of months off. So, you know, you're talking about November, you have to end this season in August. So, I mean, you're really kind of limited in what you can do in terms of the calendar. So I know, but I know they want to do it. They both, both sides are motivated to do it. So my guess is they will find some way to do it, which will involve bringing everybody to one spot. And everybody's talking about Las Vegas, you know, because Las Vegas has the hotel space, number one, to house, 16 NBA teams for multiple weeks, right? Um, and, and their staffs and their families and all the things that you're going to need because you have to kind of seal it. It has to be kind of like a bubble city, right? I mean, you can't let people kind of just go in and out as, at their choosing. You have to kind of really limit their travel. So they fly into Vegas, they go straight to their hotel. Their hotel has been sanitized to the extent it can be. There's very few people that are going to have access inside the hotel. Um, so they're going to try and do it. I don't know if they're going to be able to do it. I just wrote a story this morning for the athletic about a league in Japan that tried to restart its season and they tried to do everything that they could to kind of, you know, test the players and, and limit the exposure. And they played in empty arenas and they played exactly one weekend and they had to shut it down because that just the, the spread of the coronavirus just exploded across the league. And so, you know, they didn't play in one place and that will help mitigate it some, but you're still, it's still a gamble, you know, and I still, and you have no idea what any one place you go to is going to be like two months from now. You don't know if Las Vegas will be in the middle of a, of a spike, you know, or, or not, it may not be, but you just don't know it. And so how do you know, how can you plan if you don't know? So it's going to be difficult, but I know they want to do it. Right. And it seems like the NBA draft, they've been wanting to push it back. It makes, you know, sense for that to go after yeah. the season in some capacity. Do you see a combine still being possible? I know it's, you know, a huge part of how, you know, teams select prospects now. I think it's going to be difficult to have a combine, you know, I mean, again, anything that brings a lot of people together brings whatever those people are carrying with them. Right. So it's just going to be really hard to have 400, 500 people together. You know, you can't have it in Chicago. That's it. It's under lockdown. You know, they're not allowing large groups of people to, to get together. So let's say for sake of argument, now Georgia says it's open. It's going to be open this weekend though. Okay. And we'll see if that, that works out, but you know, could you have it in Atlanta? I guess, I guess you could, if, if, if they're allowing large groups to congregate again. So maybe you have it in Atlanta on some sort of limited basis. Um, you know, I suppose that's possible. Atlanta has obviously has plenty of hotel space. Um, 
So, you know, could you do it that way? My guess is you're probably going to have some sort of virtual combine if you have one at all, where the players are weighed in place. Because all you're really looking for is measurable measurables, right? That's the main thing. So you want to know what their what their actual height is. You want to know what their actual weight is. You want to know what their wingspan is, what their body fat is. And so what you might do is have, you know, the the top 50 to 75 or maybe the top 100 players all have their metrics done in place wherever they are and have that available to team doctors and, and have whatever uh, x-rays and, and, and physical exams that, that are possible for those players made available for everybody virtually. And maybe there's one, um, you know, kind of, dedicated website that will have all of those things uh, available to teams and and every team will be able to do what we're doing, which is have zoom conferencing with the players so they can do their interviews. That's the other big thing that you get out of Chicago is the interviews. So I think what they'll do is maybe make, you know, you'll, you'll have each team usually at the combine has 20 slots for 20 players, right? You can, these are the 20 players we want to talk to depending on where you're drafting. So the teams at the top of the lottery, obviously take the top 20 players. And if you're down near the bottom, you go for, for that level of player. And you may have something like that with zoom conferencing available and zoom interviews available. So as long as you can do the metrics and the interviews, I think you can do it virtually. I don't think you really need to play. Nobody, nobody really cares about the games. You know, you've seen these guys on tape in college. So, uh, you just want to make sure you have the the measurables and the interviews. And this draft seems to have a lot of talent in it, and that's both from the NCAA coming in and guys overseas coming in. So yeah. if you had to pick, you know, top five, top three, whatever it is, a couple of your favorite prospects in this draft, who would they be? Well, I think, you, you know, you, you start maybe with, uh, you know, uh, Anthony Edwards is kind of a safe pick, right? I don't know that. I don't know that people think of him as a great player, but he's certainly a solid player. He's a low risk player. He's a wing guy. Is he a point or a two? I mean, you're going to kind of find that out. Um, but you know, I think it's, I think it's the usual list of suspects that, that you've seen on most of the mock drafts. It's Edwards, it's Toppin, it's Avija from Israel. It's Wiseman certainly from Memphis. Um, LaMelo ball certainly um, will be in, in the top five and probably the top point guard prospect. Um, so those are the, the ones that you're going to look at primarily, I think, uh, at, at the top of the draft this year. There's no, there's no obvious number one. There's no lead pipe cinch number one this year, but every draft winds up being a pretty solid draft, right? I mean, there's very few drafts that are awful, right? There's, a, there's been a few here and there, but there's very few drafts where there's no great players. Somebody will be great in this draft. The difference this year is that we just don't know who, right? <laughs> we just don't know who. And so I, I like Toppin personally. I think he's a he's a very talented guy um, that, that kind of has that NBA type of game. So I think uh, he, he projects to me to be a guy that's going to be really good. Um I think I, I just don't know about Wiseman because literally he played three games in college. I mean, how can, how do you know? I mean, this is like taking a high school kid like you used to, and you're really kind of just betting on potential. But certainly the the, the measurables look good, and, and, and you look at what he did in high school, and, you, you know, he projects as an NBA center. So 
yeah, you take a look. You're obviously going to take a look at the top of the draft. Um, so there's guys there. I know a lot of guys are, a lot of people are, are in, intrigued by Avija and, and what he brings to the table. Uh, there's, a, there's concerns about the shooting piece, um, and you have to be able to shoot in the NBA if you're going to play in this era. Um, but he does a lot of good things well. And so, you know, he's, it's a good level. It's a good league, uh, in Israel. They, it's not the best league overseas, but it's a good league. You know, you're not playing, it's not a bad league. It's, it's a solid league. So, um, he'll, he'll be a top six pick for sure. And we've seen you for have a season at, you know, Maryland men's basketball games and Jalen Smith yeah. declared for a draft on April 7th and Anthony Cowan Jr., you know, is trying to, you know, get drafted or, uh, you know, sign as an undrafted free agent. Can you kind of give us your evaluation on each of those guys? Um, with Smith, it's all about the body, right? I mean, it's – I think he can rebound in the pros. I don't know if he can score at the pro level, not right now. I mean, I did – I know he's – you know, he shot the three. It, the shot's not broken, uh, as I saw it, you know, I, I didn't watch every Maryland game. I'm not going to pretend like I did. But the games that I watched, I mean, he looked like he could step outside and be relatively comfortable out there. Um, I, I just really don't know if he can score inside with his the way he is physically right now. I mean, it's just going to be it's going to be hard. Um, holding your position is very important in the NBA. Uh, and if you get the ball in the block, you really have to be able to do something with it. I don't know what he can do to move guys who are bigger and stronger than him and older than him. Um, but can he step outside and pick and pop? Yeah, I think so. And I think he can rebound. I do think he can rebound at the, at the NBA level. So that helps him. Um, but I think he's got a shot. You know, I, I don't, you know, I think he'll work hard. I think he'll get better. He'll get stronger. Um, you know, with, with Anthony, you love the leadership. You love the moxie. You love the, the, the talent. He made that team a good team. I think, you know, I think he brought those guys together. Um, I think he's a, you know, a solid prospect. I don't think he's a first round pick. I mean, I, you know, I, I, is he a second round pick? You know, once you get past the first round, it's all about what one team thinks about you. You know what I mean? So, you know, is there one team out of 30 that thinks he's a second round pick? There may be, um, but I'm guessing there probably won't be, but you never know. You just don't know. Um, so, but, but can he get an invite to a place and show people what he can do or to a team or two and show what he can do? I think he can. And I think that, you know, it all comes down with guards is, is how well they shoot, you know, how well they shoot the ball and, um, you know, See an elite shooter? No, <laughs> um, but I think he's a pretty decent shooter. Um, so I think he—he's a guy that <sighs> there are there are teams that that I think of that like guys like him. You know, I think about a team like Utah that always likes guys that understand their roles and play hard and can defend. That's the kind of place. That's the kind of team that could use an Anthony Cowan, right? I mean, and and he's got a good pedigree and. I think that he's going to have to just, the team's going to have to find him rather than him finding the team. And they're going to have to believe in what they saw in him. And they're going to have to like what they saw in him on tape to want to bring him into their camp and give him a real shot. And you mentioned Utah as a potential fit or a Tiffany Cowan. What about 
a potential fit for Jalen Smith. Well, see, he's got more suitors, I think, because of his physical tools, right? Because of his, you know, his ability to to jump, and I think he's he's got a good good nose for you know stick his nose in there and try to get a board. So that's that's you like that. So I think his his range of teams is is bigger, right? So you know, a six ten kid that can jump and is athletic is going to get a look from more teams. So there's no one or two teams with him. I think it's across the board. It comes down to him. You know, you look at your your medical people, you look at your player development people, your athletic trainer, your weight, your, your strength and conditioning coach, and you tell them and you ask them, right, is this a guy that we can make bigger and stronger and can he do what, what would need to be done? And they say yes or they say no, right, because they're looking at him as well. And so it will come down to what your strength and conditioning people tell you about him. Like they'll look at him and say, yeah, we can, we think he can hold 20, 25 more pounds and still be able to do what he can do. So I don't know what he, what he weighed in at, whatever he weighed in is a lie, whatever they listed him in is a lie. Right. So, um, so is he, is he 205, 210 ish probably. Right. So the question is, could he hold 230? Could he, could he really hold 230? You know, a lot of guys can get to 230 in the summertime and then a week of camp, they lose it all. Right. So, um, but could he hold 230 during a whole season or for a career? That's the question. And that's what it, that's what your your team's strength and conditioning coach will, will be able to tell you uh, and staff will be able to tell you. Right. And he played for his first year at Maryland and was meant to play at the four the second year. But with the Mitchell twins leaving, ended up stepping in for a five. It you know, seems to me like he would be more of a fit kind of at the four in the league, especially with what you said, kind of just his size in the post, what do you think about where he could have more success at in the league? Oh, he's definitely a four to me. I mean, I don't, he can't play the five. I mean, I mean, he just can't. He's just my, I used to work with a guy named Freddie Carter who we always say of guys like, like Jalen's like sticks that he's lighting the cakes. You know what I mean? He's just, he's just not strong enough down low. He just does not have the frame to play the five in the NBA to me. And I know that, you know, it's positionless basketball now in the NBA, but you still have to have, you know, Clint Capella's 240, 245, and he's skinny, right? You know, at the, at the NBA level. So, you know, I just don't see Jalen being able to play at the five in the NBA. Uh, and he doesn't shoot it well enough to me to play at the five. If he was a, if he was a really good shooter at the five, he could, be, could he be a stretch five? Yeah, I guess. But I, don't, I haven't seen him shoot it, you know, there's guys that they don't do things in college that they can do at the next level because they're not asked to, right? So maybe he's a great shooter. Maybe he's better than than we all saw because, you know, that's what your college coaches will tell you. Um, but my guess is he's a four at the, at the next level. Certainly not a three. I don't think he can – I don't see him being able to guard threes. You know, you have – in the NBA, the first question is what who do you guard? What position can you guard? on a nightly basis. If the first question is about defense and I don't think he can guard fives and I don't think he can guard threes. So he's going to have to be able to guard fours if he's going to make it in the NBA. And if you had to compare each of those guys to, you know, you have obviously covered the NBA for a long time. It doesn't need to be a current player, but if you could compare each of those guys to, you know, a player mm. you've seen in the league, who would you compare their game to? Well, I mean, at first glance, I would think Sticks to me is like a Larry Nance Jr. type of player, you know, who's with Cleveland now, who's with the Lakers before. 
um, very physical guy. I mean, not, I mean, sorry, not a physical guy, but an athletic guy who can use his athletic ability to rebound, run the floor, run down the middle of the floor, uh, be available for lobs and things like that. And so he can, he can be a rotation guy, right? I mean, that's a, that's a guy that can play in the NBA as a rotation guy. He's not going to start, but as an athletic guy, yeah, I mean, he could do that. He could do that. I mean, there's no reason he couldn't do that. And, and with Anthony, I I mean, I I think of, you know, maybe a Jalen Brunson, you know what I mean? Who who was at Temple, you know, some of the parts guy, right? You, You look at him individually and you go, I'm not sure, but then you look at him with other good players and you go, okay, I see. Here's what he does to make a team better. You know what I mean? And so from a from a head and kind of savvy, heady point guard, kind of smart guy who defends again, like like Jalen did. Okay, so there's teams where he could fit in. You know, a Dallas makes sense, right? Dallas is a system team. They want their guards to do a specific two or three things. You know, so could a Cowan, Anthony Cowan make sense there? Yeah. Like Milwaukee, yeah. Could he make sense there? Yeah. Now he's not. Is he as talented as Malcolm Brogdon? Maybe not quite as good, but he's good. He's on. He's on that level, right? He's not. You know, he's not bad compared to a Malcolm Brogdon. So again, there there are places where a guy like 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 Anthony fits would be a fit. And so there are guys who are in the league that play the way Anthony Cowan plays. And throughout this past season, we've seen a lot of national broadcasters who are broadcasting games for Maryland. They talk about, other than Smith and Cowan, the next pro being Aaron Wiggins. Do you see Aaron Wiggins making the jump to the NBA in the future or really anyone else on the roster uh, that Maryland has right now? I mean, I know that's been the question all year with Maryland, right, is, you know, which Wiggins are you going to get? Right. Right? <laughs> so... Guys like that, you know, those are those are tougher guys, at least right now, because the the one thing in the NBA that you must possess that you really have to show is that you're consistent at whatever it is you're good at. It doesn't matter what it is. If you're con- if you're consistently good rebounder, they'll take a look at you. If you're consistently good shooter, they'll take a look at you. If you're consistently good defender, they'll take a look at you. But when you're not consistent, that's what drives NBA teams crazy because they need to know what they're going to get every night. You know, and even if it's just one thing, that's okay. As long as they can plug that in, okay, this guy's going to get me four rebounds a game or five rebounds a game, or he's going to make two threes a game. I can live with that. I can work with that. But when I don't know, that's what that's when they they lose faith, right? And so for Wiggins. His task going forward is he has to become consistent at something, right? <laughs> and if he does that, then people will take a look at him. But that the inconsistency is what scares NBA teams from taking a look at you, from taking a serious look at you. All right, one more question kind of around the draft before we ask you about your career a little bit. Jalen yeah. Green announced, you know, that he would be going to this new G League development team for elite prospects right. instead of playing college basketball and you know, you had LaMelo Ball and RJ Hampton both with success in the NBL this season, now entering the 2020 draft. What are your thoughts on this trend? And, you know, how do you see it impacting the future of the NCAA? Well, I mean, you know, from a 30,000 foot point of view, I don't have a problem with it. I, I, I understand the motivation from the NBA's perspective is, well, if these guys, if these guys aren't going to go to college, 
we might as well take them under our wing a year early as opposed to them playing in China or playing in, in Australia or playing in Europe. Why, why, why have them do that? Bring them under our umbrella with our coaches and, and we'll start working with them early and we'll, we'll pay them a little bit more than they would get in a normal G League contract to make it worth their while. And maybe this is something that we can market as something, you know, to help our G, to help our G League product. So I get that. I just don't understand. I understand. I shouldn't say I don't understand. I haven't, it hasn't been explained to me by the G League people that I talk to how they see this working from the player's perspective. You know what I mean? So, like, if I'm, if I'm LaMelo Ball or if I'm, you know, if, if I'm Ham, one of the other guys that, that played overseas, you know, what do I get that's better for me in the G League than I would get playing over in Australia? I, the ABL, the NBL, it's a good league. You know, it's a good league. And you, there's good players that come out of that league. So, and they're, and it's grown men, you know. Where, so, other than maybe a little bit more money, there to me, there's not that much difference between the NBL and G League. So, what, why would I, as a young player, what more would I get playing in the G League than I would get playing abroad? So that's what I'm not completely sure of right now. And that's the kind of thing that I think needs to be explained to people other than we'll pay you a little bit more. Because at that level, that's not really all that much more money. And it's only for a year anyway, right? So um, that's what I would want to know if I were a young player coming out um why why would this be better for me than the experience of playing abroad you know a different culture a different different mindset different worldview you know there's something to be said for that as well you know i mean something to be said for spending a year abroad that's why students go abroad for a year right when they're in college for the experience of it right so there's value in that too so there may be more value in that than playing in LA or San Francisco or New York, wherever they have this, these select teams um, because they've probably already been in LA. Right. So, um, what, you know, to me, there's value in both things. And I want to know why this is more value than that. So now we'll start talking about your career a little bit. And I guess we'll start out just plain and simple. When did you realize you wanted to make sports journalism a career? Um, well, I'll be, I mean, I did not believe for a very long time until, I don't know, probably probably at, right after I graduated from college because I really didn't think I was going to be in journalism. I thought I was going to be a high school history teacher. I really did. Um, I loved history, and I, and I thought that's what I was, you know, I'd be good at. Um, so... Uh, I, when I was at American, I just really fell in love with being a reporter. Um, that's where it really kind of turned around for me. So, um, I got a, I got very lucky that I was able to work at the Washington post my last year of college, um, part-time doing high schools. Um, and until you do it, you don't really know if you're any good at it. Right. And so I, I did that for a year and. I think I did okay. And, and I realized that maybe, you know, okay, maybe I could do this. And, uh, I got, a, again, very fortunate that, uh, I was able to 
get a job right out of college at the post um, as a as what they call a GA, which was general assignment reporter, which is just whatever needs covering, you go cover it. Um, and so I did that for a year and I got to cover some amazing things. I got to cover the Indy 500 and I got to cover the U.S. Open tennis tournament and I got to cover the final four. I mean, these are things that normally you're not exposed to at a young age as a young reporter. But I, again, being able to work at the post, that was, it was a real break for me. And, um, and again, once you see that you can cover those events and that you do okay covering those events, it really uh, makes you confident that, that you can do this for a living. And so that's where I kind of, that's when the light really kind of came on. It was that year or two in realizing that I could cover these events and do okay and, and write good stories that they liked. And um, that's where, where it really you know, dawned on me that this could be a career. And you went to high school at DeMatha. I, uh, I actually went to high school at the field school right down the street from American University. Yeah. And I would yeah. go cover uh, DeMatha and the WCAC because uh, just the athletics were so much better. When you were at <laughs> DeMatha, did you play? Did you, uh, you know, work for a school paper, or cover sports or anything like that? Or was it not until college that you really got into the reporting side of things? Oh, no, I, I was, I, I covered, I was working for our paper in high school, um, you know, and, and I, I played softball. That's, that's all I played. That was the extent of my uh, athletic career because uh, I wasn't very good at, at anything. So um, I knew early on that uh, if I wanted to stay in sports, it had to be on this side of the fence. And that was okay. Um, but yeah, I, you know, covering sports at DeMatha was, uh, you know, it was really, it helped me a lot because I was covovering again at a, at a high high school level an extremely high high school level yeah that's why I switched um, from the PVAC it's a much higher yeah, level <laughs> yeah and so you know you realized how good the competition was when I was in high school um, you know Johnny Dawkins was at Mackin Mackin was a great high school and Johnny Dawkins went on to Duke and played in the NBA for many years um, you know, um, Carroll High School was a, was a very good high school. Derek Lewis played there. He wanted to play at Maryland. He was a very, very good player at Maryland. Um, yeah, we were talking in the upper so day, the actually. Level, yeah, I mean, so we had, and, you know, when I was at DeMatha, Danny Ferry was a, was a freshman when I was a senior. Um, so he was there, and Adrian Branch, who played in, in Maryland and wanted to play in the NBA, was there. So, um, you know, it was high caliber really good basketball. I remember going to a game at Dunbar when Dan Matha played at Dunbar, Baltimore. And Dunbar had Muggsy Bogues. They had Reggie Lewis. They had David Wingate. They had Reggie Williams. <laughs> I mean, it was the best high school team I've ever seen. It was, um, they were unbelievable. Um, so it was so, it was such an education to be, you know, around that program with, with Coach Wooten when he was really, in his prime as a, as a head coach in the program was really rolling. And then football was just starting to come up with coach McGregor. And, you know, we had some great battles with Carol and St. John's and Gonzaga. And it was just, it was as good as you could hope for. So um, that really, again, was very helpful. I've, I've had a series of things happen to me that were very beneficial to me. And so I'm very, I'm a big believer in, in talent, but I'm also a big believer in luck. Sometimes you're just lucky. You're in the right place at the right time. All right, and you started out 
in writing, you know, start off at the post, like you said, and then ended up spending a lot of your career in broadcasting before joining the editorial staff of The Athletic. What made you switch over to the broadcasting side of things? And what have you enjoyed about, you know, both aspects of the business? Well, when I was at the post, I was, um, I had just finished covering, I covered the bullets for five years. I covered Georgetown for a year. I covered the bullets for five years. I covered the Redskins for three years. Right. So I had nine years in at that point. And so the question was, what do you want to do next? Um, I was from the 30, 31 at the time. And I wanted to be a columnist because that's kind of, that was kind of the career arc at that point you covered you you were a beat writer for x number of years and then maybe you covered a league for a a while as a national writer and then you became a columnist um i i wanted to be a columnist um i guess what i probably would have covered after that would i would have gone to the nfl and covered the league um for a while but i i wasn't really sure i wanted to do that it's not that i the league was big back then, certainly. Um, but you know, I kind of that I kind of knew what I wanted to do, and that was not available to me at the time at the post. Um, so ESPN called. Um, they were looking for a full-time reporter to cover the NBA because they had just started um, rating newspapers for their reporting people. They they hired Chris Mortensen from the Atlanta Journal Constitution. They hired Peter Gammons from the Boston Globe um, to do baseball, um, but they didn't have anybody covering the NBA full time. So they called me. And so I was thinking about it and I just thought that, you know, this is probably something that I should know how to do, right? <laughs> you know, television is television. It's not going anywhere. In fact, it's getting bigger. So I should probably know, learn something about the television business. Um, even if I'm only here for three or four years, I should probably figure out how to do TV and be comfortable on TV. And that's really why I took the job. It wasn't necessarily because it was ESPN. It was because this was an opportunity to do TV full-time for a while. And, and I had seen people do it and, and transition to it. And so I thought, well, maybe I could try that. Maybe I, sh- I should have that tool in my bag. That's really kind of what I was thinking at the time. So that's why I went to TV. I had no idea I was going to do it for 20 years. Um, I thought I'd go back to writing at some point, but uh, I basically did it for 23 years, you know? So um, it became a, a very large part and the dominant part of my career. And you've obviously interviewed some of the best talent in sports of all time, really. And and you also have covered some presidents, interviewed some presidents mm-hmm. too. So if you kind of had to break that down to the best interview you've ever had, what would that be? Oh, that's a good question. I, you know, it's hard to say. I mean, some, you know, there's some interviews that you like that nobody will remember, but you remember that somebody said something really interesting or you got them to really engage with you. Um, you know, I, I, I enjoyed interviewing Obama. I'm not going to lie. That was kind of fun because he was, I interviewed Obama and Clinton and Clinton Clinton was more of a president, a politician who, who followed sports, which was okay. And it was fine. The interview was fine and it worked, it worked out well, but Obama was more of a f- sports fan, like a real guy that really liked sports. Like you could really talk to him about sport, about basketball. Like he really followed it. Right. So it was a different interview because it wasn't, I'm interviewing the president. It was, I'm interviewing this guy who really likes basketball. 
you know, so we can just kind of talk on that on a more granular level about it. And so I really enjoyed that interview because I thought it showed a different side to him and it showed the guy that really did follow this and really paid attention and knew what was going on. And you could talk to him in a different level, but, but, you know, I mean, I got, I had some, I, I, I really liked interviews I did with Alan Iverson, you know, during his career, I thought he was a very honest guy. Um, he, he acknowledged his faults, but he was very fiercely protective of who he was and he wasn't going to change for anybody. And I thought that came through. Um, I did some, I did a few interviews with Michael Jordan, not a, not a lot, but I did a few. Um, and I enjoyed those a great deal. Uh, Charles Barkley was always somebody that I loved talking to. Uh, I got the first interview with Kevin Garnett after he signed that $126 million deal with Minnesota that kind of really changed the landscape of NBA contracts. And I really was proud of that interview. So there's been a few over the years that I, that I really liked that I enjoyed, um, the back and forth with, um, talking to David Stern was always a challenge because he was always the smartest guy in the room. Um, and he would push back at, at, at you and he would make you defend your questions. And sometimes I did and sometimes I didn't, you know, so, uh, but it was always, it was always fun doing an interview with David because he was not passive. He was an aggressive interviewee. And I, I always enjoyed those interviews. And before you, when we were talking about the WCAC, we mentioned a couple Maryland or guys that played in WCAC that went to Maryland that you got mm -hmm. to cover in high school. But what about in the NBA, any former Terps that you have a good memory of covering that made it to the NBA? Oh, sure. Steve Francis was, was, you know, it's, it's, it's unfortunate because his career just kind of petered out, right. Because of a lot of different reasons, but you know, Steve was a really good player in the NBA for a number of years. I mean, he was an all-star player um, and, and played at a very high level in the NBA for a number of years. So I enjoyed him. Buck Williams was another guy. This is an older guy, you know, back, you know, in the old days. Uh, but Buck Williams was a, a prototypical power forward in the NBA for the Nets and for the Blazers and made the NBA finals with them. Um, was a really good basketball player for a number of years uh, in the NBA. So um, those are a, a couple of guys. I'm sure I'll think of three or two or three more <laughs> over, the, over the course of our conversation. But those are two guys that jumped to mind as guys that were were really good players. Joe Smith had a really good career in the NBA. Um, you know, a number one pick uh, was never a superstar, but was a pro. Was a solid pro for a number of years. Gravis Vasquez is another guy that had a, you know, a, a more limited run in the NBA, but was a good player. Um, I think injuries are really what kind of kept him from being in the league longer, but uh, Gravis was a, was a really smart player. And I think he's going to be a, a really good coach. He's trying that out now. Um, and I think he's got a chance to be a really good coach in the league before it's all said and done. And You've covered in addition to basketball, I mean, you've covered championships across four major sports, as well as, you know, tennis, NASCAR, the Olympics, just to, mm -hmm. you know, name a few. If you had to pick one, what was the best uh, championship or event you've gotten to cover? Oh, it was a dream team, for, for sure. It's not close to me. Um, that was the, you know, one of the highlights of my career was being able to be around that team that whole year or that whole when the year it was like eight months that it was together, um, you know, because it was kind of the, the vanguard of what happened in terms of the Olympic movement with 
with pro athletes becoming part of it. Um, and they were the first and well, they weren't the first They actually was, they came at the same time tennis allowed pros to come in. Um, but that kind of changed the whole Olympic game, right. In terms of, uh, really allowing your absolute best players, no matter if they were pros or not compete for your country. And that changed basketball because the, the advent of the dream team going over to Barcelona and, and seeing the reaction of those players in those countries, literally asking those guys for pictures and autographs at the after games, it was just, it was mind blowing. And I had no idea how big the NBA was overseas until I went over to Barcelona with them and, and saw it with my own eyes. And, um, they, it was, um, it was a phenomenon, you know, and it was the best, the best team I've ever seen. Um, and they played like a team. They really did check their egos. Um, it was, it was just amazing to watch them. And I've said this many times, their opponents weren't whoever they were playing that night, their opponent was basketball. You know, the opponent was how good can we be? How good can a, can a basketball team be? And watching some of the ways that they play where the ball would literally not touch the floor. Rebound, pass, 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 dunk. Rebound, pass, 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 three. And it was just phenomenal to watch. Um, and the personalities on that team were obviously outsized uh, from Jordan to Magic to Charles Barkley to Bird. I mean, it was just, it was an incredible group. And it was, it was, a, a, it was a treat to watch them play. Right. That was a team we were going to ask you about covering that experience. If, is there a moment that sticks out to you either from, you know, in game or out of a game, just covering that Olympics that stands out from that team that still sticks in your mind? Yeah. I mean, it was, it was as much off the court as on. They, they stayed at the ambassador hotel in, in Barcelona and just watching them get on a bus and go to practice and seeing crowds that were 10 and 15 deep, you know, asking for pictures, asking for autographs and things like that. Um, and then on the, you know, when you got to the arena, it was the same thing. The flash bulbs going off, um, especially when Jordan had the ball in his hand. And you just didn't realize how big it was um, until you were over there. Um, and it was just, it was just remarkable to watch, to experience that in real time because um, it really did show you how big the sport was becoming around the world and how big the NBA was in that stratosphere. And so that was eye-opening to me. And it really explained to me how the world started to catch up, right? Because they saw it, they saw the best and they went, that's how we, that's how good we have to be if we can to compete with those guys. And so everybody started ratcheting up. Now there were programs back then that were really good. I mean, Yugoslavia, they sent a bunch of pros to the NBA. I mean, if they had been, if that country had stayed together, I mean, <clears throat> you have Kukoc, Dino Raja, you have uh, Petrovic. There were so many great players that came out of that program. So they were already there. The Russian program was already there with Sabonis and Marshallonis and all those guys. <clears throat> but then you saw other countries like Spain and France and Germany really start to ratchet up their national programs so that in time, and, and, and Argentina also. And so in time you saw, you know, Ginobili and, 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 Kuka, and uh, uh, 
Dirk Nowitzki and, and all those players and Pau Gasol and all the, and all the great players that, that came from the European programs and from the South American teams um, because I think of what the dream team put out there as a marker, you know, in terms of this is how good you have to be to compete at this level. Um, and they weren't then, but they, but they learned and they got better and they are now. So moving back towards uh, stuff recently, we'll talk about you were in 2016 named the Kirk Gaddy media award winner and inducted into the Naismith Memorial basketball hall of fame. Can you talk about that initial reaction you had when you were told and then what, what honor that is for you? What is, what is that honor? I mean, it has to be something huge. That's the basketball hall of fame. <laughs> yeah. There's nothing bigger for somebody who covers basketball than that. Right. <laughs> so, so yeah, that would be the ultimate. That's kind of the pinnacle of, of my career. Um, it was a shock, frankly. I mean, you know, we all kind of operate in your own little bubble and you know that after a certain number of years that you're, you can do this for a living, right? And you know that you're you're on a certain level and you feel like, well, I'm as good as whoever else is doing this, right? And so um, after a while, I certainly felt like I was as good as the other people who were at a top, the top levels of, in terms of covering the NBA. You know, in, our, in my era, that was Sam Smith and Jackie McMullen and David Dupree and all of the all of the great writers back then who were covering the league. <clears throat> and I certainly felt I was as good as they were, but you never are ready for somebody to say you're among the best who ever did it. Right. And so that was, it was incredibly humbling. Um, you know, and I, I felt, you know, I, I just felt really humbled that someone would think I was as good, you know, at that elite level. Um, and, you know, you can't, I didn't play, I didn't coach, so I can't be in the Hall of Fame at that level. But I'm in the Hall of Fame at my level, and that's 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 very rewarding, and it's very touching, and it's something that it, that I will cherish the rest of my life. Because um, there's a there's a little plaque in the Hall of Fame that's got my name on it, and it's going to be there forever. So that's pretty cool. And now uh, you're one of the editors for the Athletic in Washington D.C. That part of it. We mentioned that a few times now, but what went into the decision to leave Turner Sports and leave that side to come back and try to develop this relatively new publication? Well, I've said this many times, Turner was the best place I've ever worked. Um, They were phenomenal to me for 14 years. I loved the people there from the top down. Um, And I can't say that about every place I've ever worked. Um, Everybody was first rate. Everybody was first class. I did not leave Turner because I was unhappy at Turner. I was not. I was delighted to be at Turner. Um, I left for a few reasons. Um, number one, my wife and I have two sons. Um, my sons were, our sons were both getting older. They're both teenagers now. They were, you know, entering their teenage years. And you realize when you're a parent how fleeting your time is with your kids. You know, <laughs> you think when they're born, oh, this is going to last forever. And you realize all of a sudden they're 12 years old and it's not going to be forever, you know? And so you look at it and you go, well, our oldest son is at the time was was about to go to high school. And you're like, wow, he's going to probably be gone in four years. He's going to be in college. Uh, and I won't, we won't see him anymore. And we certainly won't see him as much. So um, I wanted to spend more time with my kids. I wanted to see our our two children more. I want to see my wife more, you know, um, I wanted to be home more. 
the travel is great when you're your age. When, when you're young and your age, it's great. <laughs> I, I would highly recommend going anywhere you can go. Go to, you know, going abroad is fantastic when you're 20 and 21 and 22. Even when you're 27 and 28, it's great. But when you're 45 and 46, eh, <laughs> it gets a little harder. It starts to get harder. At least it did for me. It started to get harder for me to be away from my family for long stretches. And as I said before, when, you, when you're covering the playoffs, as I did for 23 years, you're gone for two months. You know, you're just gone from the middle of April to the middle of June. You're not home. Um, so I, that started to get hard for me. Um, I didn't want to be away from my wife and kids that long. And so those were things. And, and the opportunity to work for a, a, a emerging publication like The Athletic that really kind of spoke to what really is at my core, which is being a writer. I just always loved writing. Um, it's how I express myself to the world. Um, and so uh, this was a place that valued writing and writers, and they were hiring a lot of people that I knew that were my peers and contemporaries, and they valued experience, right? <laughs> they liked people who knew what they were doing. Um, so all of those things kind of all added up to the same thing, which was, boy, you really should think about this. You know, you really, this is really something you should look at seriously because this is not, um, this is not going to be available every year, you know? So all, it was just kind of a perfect storm of all of those things kind of happening at the same point. And me saying, you know, it's the right time to do this. It's really the right time to do this. And so that's what went into it. Yeah, and the athletic, you know, has become one of my favorite publications just with the, you know, just the emphasis on feature writing and, you know, in-depth stories. What has it meant for you to, you know, be back covering, you know, teams that you, you know, grew up covering and started your career covering? It's been great. I mean, that's part of the charm of it as well. They're letting me do both national NBA stuff, but also still covering the local teams. So, you know, I mean, and getting to, to follow the Nats around during the World Series last year was phenomenal. It was great. You know, I mean, that is not something I would have been able to do if I had stayed at Turner. I mean, when I was at Turner um, the year before, two years before, I guess now, the Caps went to the, you know, the Stanley Cup. And I had to watch a lot of that in my hotel room by myself, you know, because oh. they're going on at the same time as the NBA playoffs. And it was it was great. It was fun watching it. But it was like, I really kind of wish I was there at some of those games because that would have been a lot of fun. And and it was a lot of fun being at the Nats games, you know, being at, being with them at home um, during the playoffs and being with them on the road during the World Series. That was great, you know. And so having that opportunity to do something like that was a lot of fun and it was something that I will, you know, always remember. And it, it's part of the, you know, another reason why I really wanted to, to do this, to have an opportunity to cover the local, all of the local teams um, as, as best as I can and to get to come to Maryland games, you know, something I didn't get to do when I was at Turner or at ESPN. I didn't get to many Maryland games. So doing stuff like that, it's a lot of fun. So Lila and I obviously both stuck at home now and obviously with no live sports going on, we both played an excessive amount of NBA 2K. So we have to <laughs> ask you about your role as a sideline reporter in this game. When were you first asked to be a part of that, and what was your initial reaction? Well, it was it was a, another, and again, 
and you think I know people sometimes think I'm being self-deprecating, but I've really been lucky. Okay, <laughs> I've really been lucky in a lot of a lot of things that have happened to me in my life, and and the reason why I'm in 2K is because I was at Turner, and I was at Turner, and I worked with Kevin Harlan, who's who's a good friend of mine um, for many years, and I love Kevin dearly. And Kevin, as you all know, is is part of the 2K game as a play-by-play guy, and about. I want to say it was six or seven years ago. We were at, I don't know where we were doing a game somewhere. I can't remember where. Um, and he said, you know, he asked me, he said, have you ever done a video game? And I was like, no. And he said, you know, you should really, you should really think about this 2k game. It's really kind of fun. And you know, it's a, you know, it's a, it's different. Um, it's, it's a different thing, but it, you know, it's something that you should, you should look into. And he gave me a contact over at, at, at 2k. And I talked to the guy and he, he was very interested and, you know, I started doing it and it it has been so much fun and it's been a real eye opener for me because I'm, you know, I'm not in their demographic, right? So I'm not the person that's going to be playing a lot of video games, but I was so intrigued by the level of detail and the amount of work that they do to make those games as realistic as possible. I had no idea because it's not my world and working with them and seeing all of the things that they do to really make that game as honest and real as possible. That's what appealed to me was, wow, they, this is not just something, this is not just a knockoff, you know, or, you know, a cheap imitation, you know, they go to arenas, they, they look at the signage and they look at, they look at how the, the seats are configured in buildings. And so they, this is really what it's like to be at, at, you know, at TD Bank Garden in Boston. It, that's, that really is what it's like, you know? And so um, that to me was really intriguing. And some of the, the innovations, the My Player and all of the things, the franchising, you know, it was just phenomenal what they do. And I just really have enjoyed learning about the video game industry in, in a different way. And it's really been a, I've been very surprised that so many young people really do follow me just from 2K. They don't even know or they know less about the fact that I was on Turner for 14 years. I certainly don't remember when I was on ES, at ESPN, but they know I'm on 2K and that's how they know me. And that's been kind of, it's been interesting to me that, you know, this whole new audience of people under, you know, watch me or like me because I'm in this video game that they play. And it's been kind of cool. Right. What's the process like of being put into the game? Like, what did you have to do to have your character made? Well, I mean, it's a lot of work. And again, that's been part of the, the process of me learning about the, the video game business is that, you know, I had to go out to their corporate headquarters out in California and do a lot of work out there, a lot of facial recognition so that they could build my character. I had to do the motion capture suit, you know, in Atlanta, I had to, um, interview this. This is fascinating. They, they brought in actors who were very tall, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and I, and the reason was because they wanted my character to, to they wanted to capture the actual motion of me interviewing someone who was tall because if you think about it you're 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 the way that you would reach the microphone up at my height to talk to somebody who's six eight or six nine 
would be completely different than my arm motion if I was interviewing somebody who was five eight or five nine, right? And so they brought in actors who were six nine, six ten to play the role of players so that they could capture my arm motion. And so it's that little attention to detail that I just was I was really blown away by. Um, and so once a year for about a week, week and a half, either I go out to California or they come to DC and I just do these interviews, you know, um, these, these voiceovers with the coaches and with the players and they, they weave in actual game interviews. It's just fascinating. And I'm just, I'm blown away by how they do it. Um, and so it's, it's been a real eye opener and it's been a lot of fun to do this. And before we wrap things up here again, we really appreciate you taking the time. We're going to end with a fun segment where uh, we name a player team and you share your favorite, just quick, you know, story or memory from covering them. Sure. So I guess to start things off, uh, we'll start off with Magic Johnson. Magic, Magic Johnson, when the Lakers were in the finals, if you got to, they played at the Forum back then, which was in Inglewood. If you got to the Forum early, games usually started about, I would say about six o'clock local time, right? Because it was a nine o'clock tip Eastern. So if you got to the Forum about 3.30 when Magic was practicing, when he was warming up, he would get there three hours before the games and, and warm up and shoot. But if he got there early, when he was done shooting, he would come back to the locker room and he would sit there for 45 minutes and talk to you about everything. And it was unbelievable. He'd sit there and go, I'm talking to Magic Johnson. <laughs> and he's just holding court. And it was just, it was, uh, it was great. It was just, it was amazing. And it was so much fun. Um, so those, that's what I remember about Magic, was sitting there at the forum at the, in their locker room with other reporters just talking to him, like I'm talking to you right now about his team, about the league, about everything. And it was just, it was a great memory. 1989-90 Detroit Pistons team. Defense. Their defense was spectacular. Um, it was the first time I got a real education and how good an NBA defense could be because I didn't understand it. You know, you watch it on TV, but you don't really understand it. But when you see it and you talk to the coaches and the players about what it is they're trying to do to take away the other team's strengths and to make them do things they don't want to do, and you saw how they communicated with each other and how you saw five people all, all working together to make the other team take the least efficient shot, it was, it was a real education for me about championship level defense and what you had to do to win championships and how good you had to be defensively to win championships. And those teams were unbelievable defensively, you know, and it, you know, they, it was a, it was, it was eight deep. I mean, it was just, the starters were obvious, you know, Joe Dumars was a great on ball defender and Bill Lambeer was a great rebounder. And Isaiah Thomas was a great disruptor. But then you brought in Rodman off the bench and you brought in John Sally and, it, and it, they were just an incredible defensive team. And we've talked about them a little bit. Obviously, you did all those interviews for a new documentary. Uh, but just to give a quick thing, uh, if there's one story or memory that stands out from Michael Jordan. 
Well, it was told to me. I didn't see it. It was told to me by Jeff Cable, who's now the head coach at Pittsburgh, University of Pittsburgh. Um, so every year the North Carolina alums play down in Chapel Hill, right? So all of them come back and they play all summer, but, you know, for a few for weeks at a time. So Capel tells this story, and this was after Jordan, I think this was after the first retirement. So this would have been in between, reti- in, before he came back and played for Washington. I think I have the time to write on this. So Capel tells the story that Jordan went down there, and everybody was down there, Stackhouse and, and Rasheed Wallace, and everybody who played down there was down there. And Jordan was on a team, and Capel tells the story that Jordan – Jordan just was bad that day. Whatever it was, he was just having a bad day. He couldn't make any shots. He lost like two or three games, which rarely happened. And of course, people, you know, the whispering that night was, wow, MJ's really kind of lost it. You know, he really can't play anything. He's kind of, kind of done, right? So Capel says that he wanted to get in early the next morning to lift because all the guys would come in about eight in the morning and everybody, you know, guys that wanted to lift would lift. So he says he got there about 5.30 in the morning to the old Carmichael Auditorium where they used to play to get his lift in. So he got there and he could hear somebody was on the floor. And he looked down from the wherever he was and it was Jordan. It was 5.30 in the morning and Jordan had a full sweat. Like he had been there for 45 minutes to an hour already shirt was drenched and he was doing drills like 17s like he's doing drills you know for that day's games and he destroyed everybody that day like he killed everybody that day that in that run of elite level nba level players from north carolina he won every game he killed everybody he didn't even want those guys to have a memory of him being bad And that's how competitive Michael Jordan was at 39, <laughs> you know, age 39, you know, like that's how much he, he could not stand losing to anybody. Um, he was just the most competitive person I've ever known. Now we'll go with three uh, more recent players, uh, first or teams and players. First yeah. one, Kobe Bryant. Well, you know, Kobe was, Kobe was hard to get to know, um, but what I really liked was his last year or two, our relationship changed and it got better, <laughs> you know, because he knew it was near the end. Um, and he was much more willing to kind of share his vulnerabilities uh, with me. And we had some really good talks his last couple of years in the league. Um, and I really enjoyed that Kobe Bryant, you know, who kind of was older and a little bit more mature, maybe wasn't kind of as maniacal about winning. Um, I didn't dislike the earlier Kobe, who was hyper competitive, but I didn't really get to know him that well. But the, the one that was married and had kids, especially, was a different guy. And I really liked him. And I was really looking forward to whatever it was he was going to do next with his life. And that's the real sadness that I feel they feel today about that. Um, sad. I think he was really going to be a very kind of compelling and interesting and substantial person in his post-playing days. 
And I really wonder what he was going to do. And I was really interested in what he was going to do. Uh, next up, the Golden State Warriors kind of recent dynasty kind of saw end this season a little bit, but just those, you know, past recent years with, uh, you know, them just continuing to go to the finals. I think what I love about the Warriors of that era is that they really have been the vanguard, not just for three-point shooting, but really for moving the basketball, playing without the basketball, and playing with joy. Um, that has been a team that really seems to enjoy playing with one another. They they really like each other, you know? <laughs> and and so that dynamic between Steph and Clay and, and Draymond Green in particular, those are three guys that really seem to like one another and they like playing with one another. And it's contagious, you know, when the, you know, Mike D'Antoni has this great saying that the ball finds energy. And what he means by that is if you move the ball with a purpose of getting your teammate open, the ball will come back to you, <laughs> you know? And if you watch the Warriors teams, that's what happens. The ball moves from Steph to Clay to Draymond to Katie, back to Steph, back to Clay. And it's whoever's got the open shot. It doesn't even matter who has the open shot. The point is to get somebody a great shot. And what the Warriors have done has really is really show everybody what it means to play as a team again, you know? And it's not ISO ball where it's two guys who touch the ball all the time. It's really whoever's open, whoever's the most open shoots the ball, you know, and whoever has a layup shoots the ball. And that's what I love about basketball. That's what, if you watch the old Bulls teams, that's what I really loved. And going back to the Lakers and Celtics teams, it was the same way. It was whoever was open. You just keep passing the ball until somebody's got a great shot. And I think the Warriors really uh, were the, really were the, the best at introducing that to the modern NBA game of pass the ball to somebody's open, you know, <laughs> and, and somebody, and, and you have people who can make shots and having so many guys that can make multiple shots and can make deep shots and, and move without the ball and keep moving without the ball and also defend. I mean, they're, they're, they are a complete two way team and, and it's fun watching them. And I can understand if you're an NBA fan, why you like watching them play because it's fun watching them play and watching Steph really rearrange the geometry of basketball because nobody is shooting the ball. Nobody shot the ball from as deep as he shoots it. And that changes the entire game of basketball because you can't guard him because you can't guard a guy 35 feet from the basket. Literally you can't do it. Right. And so that just changes how you think about how do you play defense in this era? And it's, it's something that teams are still trying to figure out. I can't help laughing because Matt has a giant fat head of Stephen Curry in his background. There you go. <laughs> I understand that. And I, and I appreciate that. And, and what I really like about Steph is that he's an incredibly grounded person and he, he's a very competitive guy. Don't get me wrong, but he's a really decent person. Like he's not, a, he's a good guy. You know what I mean? And I really, and I think that comes across. And and when you're the best player in the league, sometimes it's hard to stay normal because there's so many people telling you you're great and blowing smoke up your butt and just being wanting to be your friend. And it can it's hard to kind of not think that yeah I'm 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 the best and I'm you know and you kind of get that attitude. And he doesn't have it. And maybe that's because he's the son of a of an NBA player and the son of a really great volleyball and basketball player his mom 
Sonia was a great college athlete, you know, great multiple sport player. And so maybe he's humbled in that regard because they were better than him for a long time. Um, and so that maybe that helped, but whatever it was, they raised him right because he really has a very chill attitude about himself and it's refreshing. And then lastly, someone who ran into those warriors a lot for those couple of years were LeBron James. Well, LeBron is as selfless a great player as we've ever seen. Um, I think the comp- the competition is magic um, because LeBron's ability to pass at his size is as good as I've ever seen since magic. Um, and his willingness to pass is as good as I've ever seen at his size since magic. Um, he's a great player. He's a great player. He's one of the best players of all time. Um, and again, the scoring is great. You know, he could score as much as he wants to score. But to me, it's always going to be his willingness to pass the ball. Um, And that goes all the way back to when he was first, you know, his first couple of years in the league when he was with Cleveland and they were playing Detroit in the playoffs. I'll never forget. I think it was one of those games where he had scored 45, 46 points. And at the end of the game, he drove the lane and he had a layup, but he passed the ball to Danielle Marshall in the corner because Danielle Marshall had a wide open three. And people killed him for not taking the layup. And I thought the absolute opposite. I thought that's why he's going to be great. Because in this situation, instead of trying to be the hero, he made the right basketball play. The right play was the corner three. Because that's the most, that's a better shot. And it's a and it's a more efficient shot. And he passed up a layup to get a, a wide open three. And even and Daniel Muscle missed the shot. Missed it. It doesn't mean it was the wrong play. It was the right play. And that's when I knew LeBron James was going to be a great player um, because he was, he made the right basketball decision and he, and he basically has his whole career. Uh, And so to me, I don't care what his record is in the finals because the finals is all about how healthy you are. It's not about how good you are. Um, And he's a great all time player. And I respect the fact that he has empowered people around him, you know, from Maverick Carter to Rich Paul uh, to make decisions for him uh, that most people would not make. Most people his age would not do that. Um, And those guys have served him well. And so his group has been as solid a group of people on and off the court as you could find. And that's a real testament to to all of them. Um, but it's a real testament to LeBron James as a person as much as as a basketball player. And we'll wrap it up with that. Thank you so much for taking the time out of, out of your busy schedule to join us. We really appreciate it. Well, I appreciate it, guys. Thank you for having me. And I, I hope that this ends soon and you can get back to your normal lives. 